Let's open the Holy Scriptures to Mark chapter 7. The Gospel according to Mark chapter 7. We'll read together the first 23 verses. My text this morning is made up of the first 13 verses. We won't reread that section because of its length. The Word of God at Mark 7, verse 1. I'll be reading from the King James, the authorized version. You'll have to excuse me for that, but I think that reading from the King James and your following in the ESV will be able to uh, be in sync. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashen hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders? but eat bread with unwashen hands. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, And whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things ye do. I think I'm going to stop there just to be sure that our service doesn't go too long this morning. May God bless the reading of his holy word to our hearts. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, anoint the mind and heart and lips of thy servant so that he may proclaim thy word in all of its truth and beauty for the salvation of our souls, our edification, our growth in grace, but especially so that thy name may receive the glory that is its due. For Jesus' sake, amen. The Church of Jesus Christ recognizes one ultimate authority. The Reformed faith teaches and Reformed believers honor the authority of Holy Scripture. Scripture is the authority for the individual believer, and Scripture is the authority for the Church of Jesus Christ. What we believe, what we confess, as well as how we live, is governed by the Word of God. Scripture is the authority for our worship, so that our worship today, the elements of our worship service is governed by the Word of God. Scripture is the authority for the minister of God's Word who is a servant of the Word. Scripture is the authority for the session, the authority for the presbytery, the authority for the general assembly. By scripture, all teachings, writings, decisions of the assemblies of the church are to be judged. The truth of the sole authority of scripture was a truth dear to the heart of every reformer. The reformers vigorously defended the truth of the sole authority of the Bible. One of the watchwords of the Reformation was sola scriptura, only scripture. When all is said and done, the most important issue of the entire Reformation was the issue, what is the authority in the church? Still today, the main issue between Protestantism, Protestantism that is faithful to its heritage, and the Roman Catholic Church is the question of the authority in the church. Rome of the 16th century 
And Rome of the 21st century denies the sole authority of the Bible. And alongside of Scripture, Rome has elevated to a position of equal authority, even superior authority, tradition, the authority of church tradition. The words of Jesus in Mark 7, 1 through 13, concern this matter of the authority in the church. In this passage, Jesus upholds the authority of the word of God, the sole authority, the ultimate authority, the final authority of the word of God. He condemns for teaching those who maintain the commandments of men and for elevating the commandments of men above the word of God. So this morning, I call your attention to the word of God and the traditions of men. There are two main headings for the sermon this morning. First of all, Jesus' rejection of the traditions of men. And then secondly, his upholding the authority of God's word. Jesus rejects the ultimate authority of tradition. In the passage, there are several references to tradition. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. Verse 5, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders? Verse 8, for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men. Verse 9, and he said unto them, full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. And finally in verse 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. Let us be clear. Jesus is not in this passage rejecting tradition. He is not. He is not rejecting the place of tradition in the church. Rejecting tradition per se in and of itself. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that because there are good traditions in the church. Praiseworthy traditions. Traditions that are connected in one way or another to the fundamental principles of the word of God. We're going to gather. 
for two public worship services today, although there is no place in Holy Scripture that says the church must come together twice every Lord's Day. The church has determined that this is a good and praiseworthy tradition and that the minister of the word can labor during the week to produce one or two good sermons in order to guide the church in worship. There are other good traditions. The prayer before and after the preaching of the word of God the good tradition that we may have in the administration of the Lord's Supper or even the sacrament of baptism next week. There are good traditions connected to the administration of the sacraments. Some congregations may administer the Lord's Supper, for example, the thinking of the eldership and the people. This is the best way to administer the sacrament with a common cup or one loaf of bread out of which everyone pulls their piece or individual cups and separate pieces of bread. Jesus is not rejecting tradition. He is rejecting the making of these traditions as authoritative in the church as the commandments of God, making these traditions binding on the consciences of men so that you must follow these traditions, you must do it this way, and if you don't, you sin. The whole issue to which Jesus addresses himself in the text concerns the authority of tradition over against the word of God. The matter of authority, which is of ultimate authority, tradition, or the word of God comes out in the passage. Jesus makes that plain by what he says in verses seven through nine. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and those other things. Full well ye reject the commandment of God, the authority of the word of God, that you may keep your own tradition. And that comes out in verse 13, the final verse of the section. The King James translates, making the word of God of none effect. But the Greek there is, and the ESV may have this, making the word of God of no authority, of no authority through your tradition 
which ye have delivered. The issue was the authority in the church. What is the ultimate, in the end, the sole authority? By their traditions, the scribes and Pharisees had set aside the authority of the word of God and had elevated human tradition. How? How? They did that, not, of course, by rejecting the authority of the word of God altogether. The scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day did not toss the Old Testament scripture out of the church, reject it, and set up rather in its place human tradition, their traditions. No, but what they did was to place their traditions alongside of the authority of the word of God. That's what they did. We're given two examples in the passage of how exactly they did that. The first example is the occasion for Jesus' instruction here, the failure of Jesus' disciples to wash their hands. That's verse 2. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled that is to say, with unwashing hands, they found fault. We must be clear as to the reason on account of which the leaders of the Jews found fault with the disciples for not washing their hands. It had nothing to do with politeness, proper etiquette. It had nothing to do with germs and seeing to it that when you wash your hands, you are eliminating the germs that may be on your hands and may be spread to others. We're very sensitive to that matter as a result of the COVID pandemic. Everybody's washing hands much more frequently than we ever did in our lives. That was not the reason. But the leaders of the Jews considered these hand washings to be religious matters. And here's the thing. You never know when you go to the market and you purchase your groceries for the day. No refrigerators, no deep freezes. So daily Jewish housewives went to the marketplace. You never know who might have touched that apple or that potato, or maybe that merchandise, that pot, or that kettle that you bought. Maybe, perish the thought, a Gentile circulating in Jerusalem at that time. There were many Romans, Roman soldiers. What if a Gentile had actually touched that apple or that potato and made in their mind then that apple and potato ceremonially unclean. If you touched it, you were defiled. You became ceremonially unclean. Or what if a fellow Israelite had come into contact with that 
piece of fruit or produce or merchandise, and they were ceremonially unclean for whatever reason, well then by your touching it, you became ceremonially unclean. That was the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. What it amounted to was that you sinned. You sinned. And that is why the word that's used there is defiled. You defiled yourself. Footnote. Footnote. The footnote has to do with what we read in verse 4. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of. Interestingly enough, the word for washing there is baptize. Baptizo. That underscores, by the way, also the fact that they regarded this matter as a religious issue. Baptizo. The baptizing, the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. And many of the versions add here, the ESV does, couches. And that's the Greek. My point is that it is the argument of the Baptist that the word baptizo always means in whatever context, it always means in Scripture to be totally immersed. Nobody totally immersed their tables or their couches. Nobody. They sprinkled some water on them and then took a cloth and washed them. All right, that's an aside. That's a footnote. Something that you can bring up with your Baptist friend, family member, or co-worker. That's the first example. The second example illustrates how the scribes and Pharisees actually set aside. They didn't elevate their traditions as equal. They elevated them above the word of God and set aside the word of God. That's verses 10 through 13. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, Corbin, that is to say, gift, a gift, but whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free, and ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no authority through your tradition. In this passage, Jesus quotes a bit of Jewish tradition. According to Jewish tradition, a man might withhold help and support needed by his needy parents simply by declaring that what would be required for their support he had dedicated as a gift Corban, gift, for the temple or temple servants. Not that he had given it, 
or was going to give it in the near future, but simply that it was Corbin and it was going to be saved as a gift for the temple. And then, of course, the parents would die and that vow he would be free from. And besides that, not only was that gift Corbin, but I add here that in keeping with the theology of the scribes and Pharisees, the giving of that gift for the support of the temple and for the enrichment of the priests and especially the high priest who always got his cut from every Corbin was of meritorious value. You merited, you earned with God by your Corbin. I appreciate it very much, the prayer of our brother deacon this morning, highlighting the very different attitude between the pre-Reformation and the post-Reformation church as far as our giving in the church is concerned. gifts of gratitude and thankfulness. Nothing to earn. No indulgence to buy. Our worship, including that aspect of our worship, is motivated, must be motivated by gratitude. This is a significant example. This example brings out sharply and clearly the issue. For involved here is the fifth commandment of the law of God. Honor your father and your mother. And that doesn't just mean, children, you're listening this morning, aren't you? That you need to honor and obey your mom and dad. Yes, you must. But it means for the older members of the congregation, it means for your parents, that they must still honor their father and their mother. And the Bible teaches us that that includes caring for them or seeing to their care when they become old and frail. That's honoring your father and your mother. What was true of the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day was true of the Roman Catholic Church in the days of the Reformation and still today. Roman Catholicism denies the authority of Holy Scripture, not by denying it outright, of course, but like the Jews, exalting another authority alongside the authority of Scripture, elevated it above even the authority of scripture. The tradition of Rome consists of the 15 apocryphal books, fully two thirds of the volume of the New Testament scripture. It includes the voluminous writings of the early church fathers, the huge collection of the pronouncements of the church over the ages, 
and all the papal decrees. When the reformers objected by appealing to scripture, to a particular doctrine or practice in the Roman Catholic Church of their day, repudiating those practices and those errors. Rome defended herself by appeal to tradition. Not a shred of support in Holy Scripture, but tradition. The result of it was that many of the most prominent doctrines and practices of Rome Purgatory, a priesthood that offers a sacrifice called the mass, transubstantiation, prayers for the dead, indulgences, penance, the whole worship of Mary, her immaculate conception, her perpetual virginity, her assumption into heaven without ever having to die as well as the use of images in worship, the celibacy of the priests and of the nuns, the whole doctrine of the papacy, and many, many other things are not founded upon the word of God, but are founded upon tradition. From several points of view, Rome contradicts Jesus' teaching in the passage with regard to the sole authority of Scripture. First, Rome teaches that the Scriptures derive their authority from the church. The church, after all, has designated what is Holy Scripture. Says Rome, no, the Reformed say, we simply recognize what books of the Bible our inspired scripture, but Rome teaches that the church decides which books are inspired. Rome teaches about the content of the Bible, that the meaning of scripture is determined by the church. The church is authoritative in interpreting the Bible. That first. Second. Rome contradicts the teaching of Jesus here by making her traditions binding upon the consciences of her members. Rome makes these traditions, the belief of them, the practice of them, necessary for salvation. Although there's not a shred of support in the Holy Scriptures, simply on the basis of tradition, a doctrine, becomes a binding doctrine upon the members of the church. Pilgrimages, fasts, celibacy, seven sacraments, Rome's teaching concerning Mary, prayers for the dead, all of it, church tradition. And in the third place, Rome opposes Jesus' teaching here by saying that the Pope, in his office, teaches infallibly. So that whatever the Pope says, ex cathedra, must be believed by the members of the church, must be practiced for salvation. 
In actual fact, the final seat of authority in the Roman Catholic Church is not an infallible scripture, but an infallible pope. And in actual practice, too, that's the view that the members of the Roman Catholic Church take. They're not so interested in what this book teaches, but in what the Pope says. And in the fourth place, the most glaring example of Rome's making the authority of tradition above the authority of Scripture is her setting aside of the very heart of the gospel, the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Holy Scripture. Our righteousness, not on the basis of our work, but Christ's work. Not our merits, but the merit of the Son of God, his doing and his dying. Like the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day, Rome teaches salvation by meritorious good works. Rome denies the cross. Everything that Jesus did on the cross, the reformers repudiated this fundamental teaching of Rome. Why? Because it's the teaching of Holy Scripture. Scripture proclaims the gospel of the cross, the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us by faith in him. The sole authority of scripture in the church is set aside by others than Rome today. The cults characteristically set aside the authority of scripture, it's the writings of Russell, of Ellen White, Mary Baker Eddy, or another book like the Koran, the Book of Mormon. Pentecostalism sets aside the authority of the word of God and elevates alongside of the authority of scripture, feeling, experience, a second work of grace and so dispenses with the authority of scripture. In many places today, science is elevated. So-called science is elevated above holy scripture so that, well, science teaches that the earth came into being not in six literal consecutive 24-hour days, but over millions and billions of years. It teaches that man came from a monkey. It teaches that marriage is not the union of one man and one woman, but may very well be the union of two men or of two women, the abomination that is countenanced by the laws of our country. The husband is not the head of his wife in marriage. She, 
not a faithful helpmeet to her head and husband. And on and on, rejecting all of the traditions of men, Jesus upholds the authority of God's word. Scripture is the authority. It's the only authority over God's people. Jesus sets the example. In his controversy with the scribes and Pharisees, he appealed to the passage that Pastor read earlier, Isaiah 29, particularly Isaiah 29, verse 13. For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips and do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of man. He does that again in verse 10, where he appeals to what Moses wrote. But what Moses wrote is the fifth commandment by his own use of scripture, his own appeal to scripture. Jesus himself, the son of God. He doesn't say, you believe this now because this is what I say. The son of God, the second person in the Trinity. No, he says, believe this because this is the teaching of the Bible. By his own use of scripture then, Jesus upholds the authority of scripture very quickly. Bear with me. He teaches three things here. First, the authority of scripture that he teaches rests upon the truth that the Bible is the word of God. That's the fundamental truth. The authority Overall is the authority of God. There's no higher authority. How can the Bible be the final authority in our lives and in the life of the church? Because it is the word of God. That's verses 8 and 9. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men. Verse 9, ye reject the commandment of God. And then, verse 13, for making the word of God of no authority through your tradition. The word of God. He's referred to that earlier as what Moses said in the fifth commandment. But now in verse 13, he says what Moses said, God said. What Moses said is the word. Of God. That's the issue before the church today. Yes or no? Is this the Word of God? Second, the sole authority of Scripture rests on the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need anything else. We don't need the traditions of men. We don't need the apocryphal books. We don't need another book alongside of the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. It contains everything that we need to know for our life as God's people in the world and for the worship of him as a church. And thirdly, Scripture is the authority in the church because Scripture is clear. It's understandable. 
the reformers used this big word, perspicuous. But that word perspicuous just means clear. Whenever I illustrate this aspect of the truth of Scripture, I compare it to Bear Lake. We lived for 10 years in Loveland, Colorado. Two kids, more importantly, 10 grandchildren who lived there. Loveland, Colorado is at the base of Rocky Mountain National Park. You go up and you're in Estes Park. You go up and in your Rocky Mountain National Park. And there's a little hike, it's not that long, to Bear Lake. It's a very deep, deep, cold, no swimming, you'll freeze, lake. It's clear. It's so clear you can look in it and you can see fish in it. But it's so deep. That as clear as it is, you can't see the bottom. You can't see the bottom. Scripture is just like that. Because Scripture is clear. Clear enough that even our young people and our children can understand it. It can function as the authority in our lives. So then, we must honor the authority of Scripture. We must honor the authority of Scripture as the only, the sole, the ultimate, the final authority. It must be the final court of appeal. Scripture must be over everything. Every decision of session, presbytery, general assembly, what the elders decide, what the deacons decide, the individual life of the believer in his marriage and in his family. There's a danger here. It's the danger that although I think there's no one in the congregation this morning who would deny the authority of Scripture. But here's the danger. It's verse 6 that we honor this doctrine with our lips, but not from the heart. That's the danger for the believer. Personally, that's, that's the danger in the church. Then, although this word says, you love your neighbor and you live peaceably with your brothers and sisters, in the congregation, in my heart, I despise her. Or I'm looking for the moment of revenge on him for what he said or did to me. Then although the word of God says to me as a husband, you love your wife, you honor your wife. I don't always honor her as I ought. I seek myself and I use her for myself. Then although, and that's the scripture here, children, the Bible says you love your father and your mother and you obey them. Even if you don't agree with what they have decided, with the decision that they have made, no matter they're your father and your mother, 
And the fifth commandment says to honor and obey them. All sorts of practical applications. There's room among us for self-examination this morning. If this book is to function as the authority, we must know it. We must read it. We must meditate on it. We must pray over it. This is how we are to receive all the teaching in the church. Pastor's teaching, my teaching this morning. This is the authority over everything. Two considerations and then we're done. First, our own good and the good of the church is involved here. That's why Jesus appealed to the fifth commandment and that's why it's an especially powerful appeal for remember the fifth commandment not only calls the children to honor and obey their parents, it gives them a glorious incentive that your days may be long in the land which the Lord God hath given you. What's that land? How long? The land is the land of Canaan, but that's a type of heaven that your days may be long in heaven. That's the incentive. But especially, not only our welfare and well-being, but the glory of God. That's the issue. That's verse 6. That's the appeal to the prophet Isaiah. Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's it. That's the incentive. And that's the calling. That we honor our God. Honor him by obeying his word. Not only with our lips, but from our heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thy word reveals our weaknesses and our sins, and we confess them and plead for forgiveness. But at the same time, we are convinced of the work of thy Holy Spirit to renew us and to sanctify us and to make us more and more in the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Use the word this morning to do that. Amen.